Well, as you most certainly know, things in our nation have become pretty volatile. You probably are well aware of the uh, riots that happened in Salt Lake City yesterday, and that was just a little taste of the things that are happening all around our country, in most of the big cities. You're probably aware of the article uh, that has uh, come out sharing what's going on, not just the article, excuse me, the report, the video that has been widely spread about a Minneapolis police officer kneeling on the neck of a man um, who was restrained uh, leading to his death. You know, the church is no stranger to issues of race. In fact, race issues were the very first corporate sin to be dealt with in the church. In Acts chapter 6, the Greek-speaking Jewish, Greek-speaking Jewish widows uh, were being overlooked in the daily distribution of bread. In fact, they were favoring giving to those who were the Jerusalem, the Hebrew-speaking women. The church had to deal with this quick, fast, and in a hurry. Throughout history, the church has had to deal with lots of issues of racism because the church has gone out into every nation. Even in our own American Christian history, we certainly are no strangers to issues of race. Our response to racism as Christians should be incredibly simple. It's an abomination. Some people are incredibly quick to cry racism in certain situations, like the one that happened this last week. Others are slower, wanting to wait for the evidence to come out to be certain as much as we can. But regardless... There are people in the streets right now all over the country committing all kinds of heinous acts and justifying such behaviors by saying that it is a right response to systemic racism. So my point in saying that is that if you're here today thinking like, I'm not so sure that was the issue that this last week, that's not necessarily the point right now, is it? People are leveraging that idea in order to justify what's taking place all over the country. I just want to quickly begin by, by sharing you my personal gut reaction to this situation, to all of these riots that can no longer even be called protests. Personally, I'm incredibly frustrated by this, as I suspect that many of you probably are as well. I'm certainly not the only American to feel this way. Maybe I'm going to say the same kind of feeling that you're feeling right now. One of the reasons that I'm so frustrated is because this could have been a greatly unifying moment for Americans. Virtually everyone who viewed the video, or even parts of it, of that Minneapolis police officer killing that man, virtually everybody was quick to condemn the actions of the police there. Politicians from both sides of the aisle were in agreement on something. Even the major media sources, even social media voices. I know that you could find some people out there who would argue with that. But the overwhelming majority, the representative and credible voices in our society, were all in unanimous agreement about the wickedness of the act and the need for there to be justice. Personally, I, you may find this, but I didn't hear a single person, credible and reputable, who did not condemn this police officer. Some were slow to blame it on race, but virtually all were quick to condemn the actual activity as unjust. Could have been a unifying moment. 
Instead, however, this has become yet another moment in our modern American experience that serves to divide. It feels like any of the progress that has been made in race relations in America, even the bridging of the obvious divide between people in different sides and different sides of the political aisle, gets reset during times like this. So here's the question I want to offer up today. How are we to think about this? How are are we supposed to think? In fact, in order to respond rightly, we have to be thinking rightly. Well, the way that I hope to serve our church body today is to try to rally us around some thoughts from the Word of God on how we as the church, the ecclesia, the gathering of believers called out of this world, how we are to think about these things. I want to start by praying this morning, and then I want to Look at the Bible to get some clues as to how we ought to respond. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are facing a very upsetting, divisive time in America. It seems like one thing after the other after the other keeps happening. And Lord, we want to act rightly. And so Lord, we need to think rightly. And Father, I know that I don't trust my own mind I don't trust my own heart. Then in a vacuum that I could know the right way to deal with these things. And Father, I pray that every Christian would feel the same way. That we would know the sinfulness of our own hearts and that we'd be quick to look to your word, your unchangeable objective truth to get direction. And so Father, give us that direction we ask this morning. Help us to see things through the lens of your holy word. Help us to think with a big picture view. Help us to zoom out from our isolated situation here today that we would see things in light of your word and in light of Christian history so we would not run into the error of responding wrongly to these things. We need your help, Lord, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm greatly served by the reminder that the church is no stranger to volatile times. The church is no stranger to issues of race, as I just said, but it's no stranger to the issues of injustice, particularly those that turn into riots and mob justice. I want you to consider it for a moment with me. The content of the Gospels. This is recording the lifetime of Jesus on this earth. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You and I may look around right now and see that things are bad, pretty bad. In fact, some of you may say, this is worse than I've ever seen it in my lifetime. Do you think things are bad right now? you think groups are divided? you think societal stability feels tenuous at best today? Jerusalem was worse. Capernaum was worse. Roman-controlled Palestine in the first century was worse. Police brutality there was worse. Racism was worse there than it is here. Did you know that the legal activities of the Roman government there made it such so that a, a Roman police officer, a soldier policing the people could grab a random Jewish citizen and demand that he carry that Roman soldier's bags? 
the leadership in that time, both politically and religiously, was genuinely tyrannical. You and I might throw that word around, and there may be right reason to be able to think about that word. But we know that there's proportions to that, and it's hard for us to even imagine a time in which a local authority could command his local soldiers to knock on the doors of a home, and if, when the door opens, sees a little baby boy, he could take that boy and murder him. And the citizens could do nothing, nothing about it. This, of course, is exactly what happened during the days of Herod, right? And it was not just those in authority that were so stricken with this wickedness. The hearts of the people, the citizens in Israel, had become radically hardened. Jesus said this, speaking of Capernaum, that city in Galilee where he did so much of his ministry, he said, I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you, Capernaum. He indicts Chorazin and Bethsaida, the cities in that area. He says that they were worse than Tyre and Sidon, Sodom and Gomorrah of the days of old. There hadn't been worse cities. They would have repented at Jesus' miracles. But those cities had a particular radical hardening of heart. And in God's providence, it was in that nation, it was in those cities that God sovereignly decreed that his son would enter into this sinful world. Many times in Jesus' lifetime, people utilized mob rule. Often masses of people tried to seize Jesus in order to kill him. On one occasion, they even tried to seize him and by force make him their king. They were very confused. But no riot was more significant than the one that resulted in Jesus being hung on a cross. I want to read for you quickly what happened there. You might remember that Pilate, who was the Roman leader of that particular portion of Jerusalem at the time, over that area, he presided over Jerusalem. As he even tested Jesus to try to see if he was worthy of death, he didn't find any sin in him. And so he tried to appeal to the people, this, is, this man is not sin, why, why should I kill him? And you remember what happens. Matthew 27, 24 says, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Jesus ultimately went to the cross at the violent demands of a mob. But this societal instability did not end after Jesus' death and resurrection. The book of Acts records many such riots, in fact, it seems that everywhere that the gospel flourished, you can also find angry mobs ruling the streets. I want you to take, for instance, the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. Pretty much everywhere Paul went, there were riots. Paul's ministry was a veritable riot factory. And one of the greatest displays of fickleness in the Bible Acts 14 tells us about the time that Paul and Barnabas entered the city of Lystra. The people there were so moved by Paul's miraculous healing of a man born crippled that they tried to worship the two men. 
You might remember the story. This is where they, they brought the bulls and the reeds in order to sacrifice, to lay them down. And said, you must be like, you're Zeus and Hermes, two of their false gods. We're, we bow to you. We worship you. And you might remember at that time, Paul speaks up and goes, no, 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 no. Do not bow to us. We are men like you, of like nature. I want to read for you two, two verses from that account in Acts 14, 18 through 19. And watch the switch that takes place. In verse 14, it says this, or ver, verse 18. Even with these words, that's him trying to stop them from worshiping him, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Next verse. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Yesterday in Salt Lake City and all around our country, people gathered to protest violence. The solution quickly became, though, more violence. It can no longer even be called protest. You see, mobs don't make sense. Don't expect them to. There's no rationale for much of what has been going down in the past few days. Sure, we can all understand what started as protest, but the utter rage and absurd violence has no grounding whatsoever in justice. The fickleness of a mob is nonsensical. In Thessalonica, after preaching in a synagogue, that's all he did. He preached in a synagogue, opened their word, showed them from the Old Testament that Jesus was the Messiah. That's what, that's what Paul did. And yet again, as a result of him preaching the gospel, Paul's ministry encounters a mob. Acts 17.5 says, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Mobs always find the wicked men to lead them. On one occasion, Paul was in Jerusalem. Again, you might remember the story if you've ever read through the, the account of the book of Acts. Paul, again, was preaching. He'd been sharing the gospel. He'd just been in the temple area, and the, the Jews saw him. He'd been there for a while. So a week after he arrives, these Jews see him in the temple area. They go, go, attack him, attack him. And they, they try to seize Paul. And it says this in Acts 21, 35 and 36. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. On another occasion, he was arrested and standing trial before the governor, Felix. The high priest himself, the highest ruling authority of the Jews, Ananias, came to bear witness to Paul's alleged crimes. And he brought with him a spokesperson, one Tertullus, who said in Acts 24, For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. You see, they acknowledged the riots but they blamed them on Paul. The one who is demanding peace and repentance and a turning in faith to Jesus is the one who's been blamed for the riots that have been started throughout the world. Paul, who, after his conversion, we never see throw a punch or a stone. You see, this is the way riots always work. 
In my opinion, one of the most intriguing examples of mob rule in Acts took place in Ephesus. If you have your Bibles, this is where I can ask you to turn. We're going to spend a few minutes here in Acts 19. A bunch of local business owners led by a man named Demetrius became furious at Paul. His preaching was undermining their idol-making trade. These were the guys who made silver shrines to the false goddess of Artemis. In fact, it was their city that had the temple of Artemis, that held in that temple the, the, the sacred rock that was probably a meteorite who fell out of the sky, and they said came from her. And they worshipped this false goddess there, and this is what these men made their living off of. And they're angry that they don't get any more money. They don't, they're not able to provide for their families because this guy is bringing salvation. And since their goddess, so-called, Artemis, wasn't strong enough to do anything about it on her own, they took the situation into their own hands. And it says this in Acts 19, 28 through 31. You can follow along if you'd like. When they heard this, they were enraged. This, is, this, is the, this was the, the men of the city hearing Demetrius kind of stir up their anger. Ah, we got to go after this Paul. They, they heard this. They got all stirred up. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. You get the picture? You don't need race. You don't need racism in order for there to be riots. You don't need particular activities of injustice in order for mobs to rule. They can happen when there's nothing unjust taking place. Verse 32 continues. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. I want you to think about this for a moment. Show of hands. How many of you watched any of the riots that took place anywhere in the world, but in Salt Lake City, particularly yesterday? You're going to see in a moment that the confused people in this crowd are complicit in what is going on, okay? Oftentimes, mobs are made up of ignorant parties. Either people who are just swept into the herd and follow the person in front of them like a lemming, or those who are disorderly opportunists who love rebellion and thrive on chaos. The Old Testament referred to these types of people as reckless or worthless fellows. And unfortunately, they can be found in any era and in any place. I strongly suspect that the majority of those looting in Minneapolis, beating up shop owners in Dallas, and flipping over police cars in Salt Lake City are from this camp. Insubordinate cowards who have no genuine conviction on what a particular protest represents, but are eager to take advantage of, to exploit disorder for their own personal gain. And you can tell who they are by the smiles on their faces as they pummel innocent bystanders, by the laughter as they indiscriminately steal from powerless business owners, from the glee they exhibit as they vandalize public property. There is no grief 
There is no remorse. They are not saddened by current events. They are enthralled with panic and they feed on terror and they wallow it like a pig in mud. Shame on those crowds. Verse 33 continues. Some of the crowd, some, prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours... They all cried out with one voice. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Sometimes when the picture of mob rule is fresh in the mind, these passages jump off the page, don't they? There's there's, there's a few. There's a few there who have a genuine concern, and they want to hear. They want to hear from this Alexander. There's a few. There's a few who considered a worthy protest. Hear from what he has to say. He he, he will speak for this paw. He will speak for this way, this movement. And Alexander did. He he got up and he, he motioned. He goes, no, no, no. He wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Have you ever read that verse and kind of doubted that a little bit? Like two, really, two hours of chanting? Yeah. People will chant for two hours the same line, no matter how foolish it is. They don't care to hear what Alexander has to say. For all they know, for all they know, this Alexander that gets up, the crowd, for all they know, he's about to clear up the whole misunderstanding and solve it. Maybe Alexander's about to deny Christ and say, all oh, that was false. Don't, we don't believe any of that. Maybe he's about to praise and worship Artemis. Maybe Alexander is about to tell them where they can find that traitor Paul. They don't even care. They don't want to hear his defense. They don't want to hear what he has to say. They interrupt with mindless chanting. Eventually, the local authorities step in to try to quell the crowd. The town clerk eventually is able to calm them down, but not until he threatens with police interference. That's down in verse 40. He says to them, We really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause, there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. Brothers and sisters, this is the kind of society in which the church was born. There are more riots referred to in the opening chapters of the history of the Christian church in the New Testament than you and I have experienced in our lifetime. Everywhere these Christians went, there was riot. I understand, of course, that these riots are different. Christianity was the target. Christianity was the reasoning. Christianity and the proclamation of the gospel is what polarized the people, is what caused the bloodshed. So why do I bring all this up? 
because I want to encourage you. How can this be an encouragement to us? It is often during times of greatest societal strife that Jesus' church takes its greatest advances. These kind of crises put a spotlight on the gospel. So how might Jesus, our King, our Savior, our Chief Shepherd, how might he use this situation to build his church? Let me give you four reasons. Number one, crisis reveals our need for a Savior. You cannot be saved unless you realize that you need saving. And crises like these make it clearer that the real problem is not out there in the world, but it's in us. For many people in our community, the biggest fear that they've been facing in recent months is a virus. You you remember? For others, it's the economic fallout that's the result of the virus. But for those who thought that COVID was the real enemy, now you know the real enemy is sin. In the hearts of every man, woman, and child, it was a man, not a virus, who killed George Floyd. It was a man who gave a solemn pledge to protect the people of his city and then broke it by putting his knee on the neck of another image bearer of God for eight minutes, ignoring repeated cries for help until he was dead. And it was three other men, not viruses, who stood around in uniforms and badges and in their cowardice did nothing. Crises like these call attention to the real problem of our world. It's not weather, earthquakes, forest fires, tsunamis, even global warming. It's not viruses. It is sin that comes out of the heart of man. You want to know what that sin looks like? You're seeing it. Just turn on the news. But for the believer, you want to know what that sin looks like? Just look in the mirror. All of this mankind is basically good talk disappears and hides in the shadows during times like this. Crisis reveals our need for a savior. Number two, crisis shows that our systems cannot save. No law can make a wicked man good. No governor can soften a heart. No amount of training can weed out every possible abuser of authority, perhaps racist, from our police force. No amount of education can fix the sinful compulsions in the heart of men and women. And no amount of protesting, rioting, or looting can undo wrongs already done. In fact, as we see, oftentimes, they multiply the sinfulness in this circumstance. 
When society shows its powerlessness to affect real change, people stop looking for salvation from within this world. They see that it's hopeless. We, get, we begin to realize that our only hope must originate from outside of this world. Societies can't solve the problem because societies eventually become the problem. Many people are, well, my goodness, it's the people in power that's the problem. If only the people took back the power. What happens when the people take back the power? The stuff we're seeing going on. Not all forms of government are created equal, but all are equally incapable of bringing about the righteousness that God requires. Ecclesiastes 3.16 says this, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, is claiming that even in the places where justice was to be dealt with, even in the place that you would look at as the greatest righteousness on our earth, you find wickedness there. Remember, that's what we see all over the Old Testament. We've been in the book of Hebrews. Last week, I even tried to show you that the whole Old Testament continually shows how in every possible situation, no matter what the authoritarian role People eventually abuse it. Nobody is perfect. Everyone will lead into error. There's a real problem in the world. And the solution is not the government. It is not elections. It is not the people. It is not better education or healthcare or vaccines. It is Jesus. He alone can save. There is only one who entered into this world without contributing to its wickedness. Jesus alone can save. And crisis highlights that. Nothing here can save. Number three, crisis makes us hungry for justice. In fact, that hunger becomes insatiable during times of crisis. Our desire for vindication maximalizes in times like this. And you know what? Even though, apart from the few rebellious opportunists, all of us want justice. All of us want it. The people crying out in the streets, uh, the people in government positions, the, the good cops, even the bad cops with a twisted view want some kind of justice. But you know what? We will not find it here. It will not be found here. What do the rioters hope to accomplish? Do you believe that if the governor of Minneapolis were to march all four cops in that situation that happened this last week out into the public square and execute them publicly, do you think the looters would stop immediately? Do you think they would begin to return all the property they've stolen back to the stores? Would they go repair the broken windows and the flipped over cars? Would they pull money out of their own pockets to pay for the vandalism that they had done? Do you think that's what would happen? Would injustice cease if somehow a few wrongs were made right? Even if some of the injustices were corrected, we couldn't possibly deal with all of those that have led to or been a result from even just this one event. Here's a question for you. You probably considered this already, so just think about this. 
Was Derek Chauvin, that's, that's the police officer who put his knee on the neck of George Floyd, was he motivated by racism? You and I may never know the answer to that question. But God knows. And he alone can and will judge rightly. Racism is a problem like heart failure is a problem. Neither happen apart from a pre-existing condition. They are both a symptom of a far deeper issue and one that only God can diagnose and one that only God can perfectly judge. Our best hopes as a society for this situation and to mitigate future situations like this cannot possibly deal with what's really going on. Many of you in your lives have been wronged. You've been wronged by people. Some of you perhaps egregiously wronged. And perhaps you may have experienced zero justice come from that wrong. You all know what I mean. Some of you are acutely aware of what I mean. But God knows about that. God knows about that wrong. God will bring it to light in final judgment. I want to read for you Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. This is the, this is the last couple chapters of the Bible. This is the very end. John sees a revelation. He tells this about the final day. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, that's everybody, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. I take that to mean books of the works of men and then the book of life. And some will be judged by the books of works and others will be judged by whether their name is in the book of life. And it says this, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is ultimate, final, absolute, conclusive, definitive judgment. And we will not see it until this day. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is why Paul in Romans 12 can say, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Why? Why? Because there's nothing worth avenging? By no means. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do you see that? Paul does not say, just let it go. There is no vindication. There is no justice. You just have to forget about it. You have to get it out of your mind like the, the far eastern philosophers who just think that the best way to deal with life's frustrations and the wickedness and evil in the world is just to forget that it's there. Just, just imagine it's not there. It's not what Paul says. It was wicked what happened to you. It was wrong what happened to George Floyd. It was wrong what has happened to how many hundreds and thousands of other people that terrible things have happened not on a body cam. 
vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Every act of wickedness will be dealt with in the end. None will be left unjudged. No evil deed will go unpunished. It will either be satisfied in hell or on the cross. By God's grace, if you are in Christ, you get mercy. We can't talk about that that paragraph there of that final judgment without glorying in the cross. You and I have works that we deserve to be judged by in those books. God knows of every wicked deed, every sin, and not just the ones that other people saw you do, the ones in your heart that didn't even make it out of your throat, the ones in your mind that didn't even make it to your body. God knows, and you are worthy of judgment for those things. And in the end, they will come to light. And for the believer, all of those things will be acknowledged as judged in Jesus and punished in him. And we get mercy that we don't deserve. But you and I can know that every act, every act of injustice is judged in him. Are you holding on to someone's sin against you? There are so many people today who hold on to not only sins done against them, but sins done against their ancestors. What? Believers can be set free from this because our sins make us deserving of that wrath, that punishment, that hell. And yet we don't even get that judgment, let alone the judgment due to others against us. We leave it to the wrath of God. He alone, he alone will judge justly. No amount of justice that could be brought against the men who did wrong in this situation can bring back the life of another. But God can do that. And people are looking for justice. My hearts go out for the people who who wanted to rightly protest. As Christians... We're we're totally fine with protest for saying to to people what is wrong. Our our proclamation of the gospel is a protest against sin and wickedness and folly in the world. We are very well acquainted with protest. There are certainly such things as Christian protest. There is no such thing as a Christian riot. And no Christian for a moment should approve of riotous looting behavior. And some in the crowds with tears in their eyes, not smiles on their faces, tears in their eyes, seeing what's going on, looking for justice, are going to be seeking, and it's not there, it's not in the crowd, it's not in the White House. Let them look to Jesus. Let them look to us. Let us show them in the word where real justice is. Not just a real justice, the only justice. Number four, crisis focuses the mission of the church. It focuses the mission of the church. Jesus gave us the great commission, not in spite of turmoil in the world, in the face of turmoil in the world. We should not be afraid to engage the world at times like this. We offer the only cure for this sickness. People are going to be asking, 
whether they say it out loud to you or it's in their hearts and on their minds, on, on their lips, maybe they haven't worded it. What's the real solution for racism? It's not, it's not laws. No law has ever stopped a person from being racist. You know the solution for racism? <laughs> of course you do. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you all, all, are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. The book of Revelation, from which we just read just a little before that, we see every tribe, every nation, every language represented and the peoples praising God forever that's the cure we must tell the world there is only one way to heal racial divide it's in Jesus what's the solution for for power hungry leaders rich I don't even know this was about racism this is about power hungry cops hurting people and that might just be a microcosm of wicked leaders and rulers in authority all around the world over the course of world history. And yes, it has happened in every day and will continue until Christ's return. What's the solution for that? Jesus says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, we must tell the world that there is a true king, one who never abuses his authority, but loves us and died for us and modeled for us what authority looks like. What is the solution for injustice? It's a perfect God who sees everything and will bring ultimate justice. Crisis focuses the mission of the church. You know what the world is not lacking right now? A wonderfully boisterous children's program. Events, a cool club, great music, beautiful buildings. That's not what the world is aching for right now. They need and want and are craving the gospel. And there are people out there right now whose hearts are being softened by this exact situation, this series of events under God's sovereign dominion in 2020. I don't, Laura was asking me yesterday, do you think that this will come to Salt Lake City? Certainly not here. And I was like, no, no, it won't come here. Like all those other big cities, all those other crazy places. That's where this stuff happens. Not in our city. No. We know what protest looks like in our city. We've been to protests in our city. The people go, oh, someone dropped some garbage. We should get that. That's what happens in Salt Lake. No. The sinfulness and the wickedness of man has not evaded Salt Lake City. People in our neighborhoods People in our city are looking for justice, are seeking a true king that will never abuse 
are acknowledging our need for a Savior. And this is what we must be about. Heralding truth and proclaiming the gospel. I pray as I close today that every Christian who hears this will take advantage of this situation. Not to loot, not to take things from innocent bystanders, but to indiscriminately proclaim truth. You're going to be talking about this with people in your block, at the cubicle, in your Zoom chats. There's going to be time. Whoa, man, have you seen what's going on right now? People are crying out for this. Does it make you think about how we're going to be, we're going to get out of this? There really is only other, there's only one way. I pray that gospel truth would abound. I pray that those who are looking right now and saying, how are we to get out of this? would look to Jesus alone. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the gospel. We are so grateful that the church has never been those who run and hide when things get crazy. We are the ones who send missionaries into the world where there have been promises made by local authorities to kill whomever brings the gospel. And we send people there. Christians have been the ones who, because of our great love for you and for the lost, have been the object of terror and riots throughout the ages. Father, let us not be afraid of these times. Let us stand strong in these times and so demonstrate the power of the gospel, the courage of eternal truth. Lord, I must, I must believe that there is something going on right now that you are seeking to draw people to yourself. Help us to be a voice of reason. Help us to be people who, who are eager to draw others in to salvation. Father, give us a a laser focus on what is true and why we exist. Lord, I pray for conversations for these believers to abound in these coming weeks. That they may have gospel opportunities that they would not have had apart from these terrible events. Father, redeem this terrible wickedness in this land. Help us to think rightly about race and riots and, Lord, how to leverage even wickedness that we've observed in our time. Help us, give us courage, and give us wisdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.